At this time, let's have the children of the church come up as we pray for them and dismiss them into their study. And then we also pray for uh, ourselves as we begin a time uh, looking into God's word. Friends, would you join me in prayer? Father, I pray at this hour, as we turn our attention to your word, uh, that it would be um, instructive to us, but more than instructive, it would be transformative, uh, whether that be in our minds, in what we think, or in our hearts, in what we believe, or in our hands, in how we obey. And Father, I pray that you be uh, not only with the children of the church, but the adults as well. Um, Lord, from children's ministry, uh, through youth ministry, through young adult ministry, through uh, the married uh, couples, Lord, that you would speak to us at this time and feed us with your word, for we are starving for it, God. Uh, We bless you. We commit this time to your hands. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. Well, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, it's in the Old Testament. And today we're starting a new series uh, entitled A Life Pleasing to God. And this series will take us up until the Christmas season. Now, why choose this series? Well, the series is inspired by this passage that Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses, uh, verse 1, where Paul writes this. Paul says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive See from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So the Thessalonian church was living in a way where they were walking uh, and pleasing God, and Paul is encouraging them to do that more and more. And as I've been reflecting on that verse, it really led me to ask this question Are you living a life that is pleasing to God? Are you consumed with that kind of question? Do you wake up thinking about that? Is my life pleasing to God? You know, as a Christian, uh, that that question should be on the forefront of our minds. It should uh, be our main concern, a, a priority by which we live our lives and make our decisions. But too many times we commit ourselves to less important questions. Is my life pleasing to me? Or is my life pleasing to others? And we hardly stop to think, is our lives, is my life pleasing to God? And I think, and this is a wild guess, but I think we don't ask that question because we know the answer. We know what the answer is. And so what I want to do over the next uh, two months, or a little more than two months, is to consider with you what the Lord, um, what pleases the Lord. How can we live a life pleasing? pleasing God. And, and I want this to not only be the, the meditation uh, for us on Sundays, but, but even just you, through your weekly lives, through the community groups, through um, the discussions and, and, and the encouragements you have with one another. Because at least in me, if I can share just a little reflection, um, as, we, as we're getting ready to move, as we've purchased a building, we had our first prayer service, which was amazing. And I sense in myself just this great desire and excitement to, to move in and start looking outward and focusing on, you know, mission to engage others, uh, I've realized that there is a very real possible danger uh, if we're not careful. And that danger is this, that uh, without proper attention inward, uh, without gazing into our own hearts, then we might miss the aim of what we're trying to do. 
So before we move, before our energies are directed uh, to reaching Lansdale and serving that community, let's really humbly spend the next few months asking ourselves this tough question, starting with us first. Am I living a life that's pleasing to God? And so today we begin this consideration by looking at a sermon that I've entitled God's Pleasure in Obedience. And so would you stand with me as we read and we receive God's holy word. We're reading from 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting at verse 10. Um, You can follow along in your sermon insert or in your Bibles, but uh, I'm just for the sake of time skipping a a few verses and highlighting just the ones on the PowerPoint and here on your sermon insert. So friends, would you hear now the reading of God's holy word? The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Verse 17. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also rejected you from being king. Verse 26. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated, friends. You know, I think a lot of Christians, many Christians are fearful of the word obedience, aren't they? They're afraid of the word obedience because they hear it as a challenge to God's grace. They're afraid obedience will turn Christianity into legalism. And there's a good reason why they would think that. The gospel is the good news of what Jesus did. Not what we did, but what Jesus did for us so that we might be saved through faith in him, not our works. So we're not saved by our obedience, but Christ's obedience. So the natural question or objection follows, why should gospel-believing Christians talk so much about our obedience if it doesn't save us? Now, 1 Samuel 15 helps answer this question, and it clears up a lot of suspicion about using the word obedience alongside using the word gospel. 
What we learn from this passage is that God doesn't demand our obedience for salvation, but God delights in our obedience once we're saved. You see, Christian, you can and you should please God. And you do it in your life as you live in obedience. And this obedience isn't performed out of duty, but actually comes out of the delight of your own heart. You see, I am what you consider a lover of food. Whenever I discover a good restaurant or good food, I want others to try it. I'm not about the life of keeping things secret. I like to make it public. You know, I consider myself to be a herald of good news, an ambassador of good news, not just of eternal life, but also of good food. And so when people try food that I've recommended, you know, in that, in that moment when I see them eating, I'm not even worried about my own food. I mean, it rarely happens, but I'm not even, I forget about myself and, and my eyes are locked on them as they begin eating. I'm reading every body language, every subtle expression. Do they like it? Are they enjoying it? Are they disappointed? What is that smirk? And I'm so consumed, my concerns are so wrapped up in that person for that moment that I forget about myself. I really forget if I'm hungry or not. Why? Because in that moment, I'm so, my delight is based on their delight. I will experience greater pleasure when I see them experiencing great pleasure. And so it is with God. Do we delight in his delight? Are our concerns so wrapped up in what pleases him that we begin to forget about ourselves? Because if this is true, then we should delight in obedience toward God. We should work hard at it. We should labor for it. We should give all of our time and energy and strength and focus to obeying him because he's told us, this is my desire. And so as we begin this series and we begin by asking this question, what does it mean to live a life pleasing to God? Our first answer is this, obedience. A life of obedience. But what does that obedience look like? How can Christians balance receiving and resting in the free grace of God through Jesus Christ with also working hard to obey God because he delights in it? How do we balance that? And so as we think about this today, here's our gospel truth. Gospel-driven obedience is the call of those set apart for God. Gospel-driven obedience is the call of those set apart for God. Or if that's too hard to remember, God delights in obedience. God delights in our obedience. And so we're going to study our passage today looking at three things. First, we're going to look at God's delight in our obedience, or God's delight in obedience. Then God's displeasure in disobedience. And thirdly, God's dealing with both. God's dealing with both the obedient and the disobedient. So let's start our meditation by looking at this first point. God's delight in obedience. Uh, the well-known verse that I'm referring to is verse 22, which I will read again. Samuel says to King Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And it's really hard when you read this text to see anything other than the fact that God is saying, my delight is in your obedience, not in your sacrifices, not in all your religious works and performances, but in obedience. 
Now, in order to understand what Samuel's saying to Saul, we need to understand more of the context, the context in which Samuel speaks these words. And so I'm going to go a little bit outside of our passage earlier into the chapter, where if you look at the beginning of 1 Samuel 15, God had commanded to Saul in verse 3, Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now this request is heavy. God is instructing Saul not to go and merely uh, scatter this army. He's not even commanding them to, to only defeat the army in battle. His command is actually to wipe out the entire nation, to erase them from existence. Now that may seem really unfair when we first hear it. I think it worries a lot of people because we wonder, is that really what God is like? Why would he command such an evil thing? But let's try to understand the unique purpose of this command and why God would give it to Saul and to Israel. Now here's what you need to know about the ancient world. In that time and culture, nations went to war to accrue wealth and power. That was pretty much the only reason that two nations fought. It was, it was entirely imperialistic. It was to conquer and then extend your own tribe's name, your own nation's name. Basically, war was a way that a king would make a name for himself. And so whichever army was the conquering one would go and they would destroy the army, but they would keep the people. They would enslave the men, the women, and the children to be their slaves. And then they would take their livestock, which was pretty much their, the main source of economy, their wealth. And so war's simple purpose was to get bigger, stronger, and richer. Bigger, stronger, richer. It wasn't about justice. It wasn't about punishing evildoers. It was just about accumulating more power, more riches, more glory. And so God's command to Saul to take nothing, not to take anything, to not profit from this battle in any single way, and only to destroy everything, the people and their possessions, was such a strange and foreign idea. The Israelites probably heard that and thought, what the heck? If we can't take the spoil of the battle, why would we go into battle at all? We only fight to get it's sort of like, imagine you went to a blueberry picking farm or you went to an apple orchard and you spent the whole day, hours laboring to pick this fruit and as you were leaving, you were told, why don't you squash it and throw it away? You would think, if I knew this from the beginning, why would I go in the first place? What a waste. If Israel isn't going to profit from this battle, why go fight at all? And here's what's so unique about God's commandment. God, in essence, is saying this. I want you to battle the Amalekites because they are a violent, oppressive people who threaten and torture other nations. They are a threat to you. They were when Israel came out of Egypt. The Amalekites almost destroyed them. They are your enemies and they are my enemies. And I'm giving them into your hands, not so that you can loot them and steal everything from them, but so that you can administer judgment and justice. Israel, you will now be my instrument to judge the evilness and the wickedness of this nation so that they will never hurt another people again. So you're not to battle them for plunder or for gain like any other war, but for my holy purpose. And by doing this, Israel would be set apart from the other nations, from the other armies. 
They were going to go to war like no other tribe in history had ever gone before. They had a new purpose, a new reason, new aims. And God was saying that if you destroy the Amalekites and then you steal their stuff and you enslave their people, then you'll be just like every other nation. And I don't want that of you. If you steal, if you defeat the Amalekites and you steal from them, then how are you any better than the Amalekites? But I have called you to be a set-apart people. I have called you into holiness. And so don't do that. If you truly belong to me, Yahweh, I am your God. If you serve me, the God of justice and righteousness, not of oppression and imperialism, then you must live as I have called you. You see, actually, in verse 22, where, where God says um, that it's better to obey than giving sacrifices and offerings. You know, why does God say that? Because clearly in the Bible, he desires sacrifices and offerings. What is God saying? God, God essentially saying this. He's saying, listen, every other nation engages in the same kind of religious rituals. Every other nation offers sacrifices to their gods. Everybody does that. I want more than that. I want your heart. I want your trust. I want your obedience because when I called you out of Egypt and I set you apart, I gave you a new mission, a new identity. And so when Israel and Saul leading Israel was obeying God, if they were to obey God, it was basically a battle cry to the world declaring who we belong to, who our allegiance is, where our allegiance is, and what our standards are. You see, when we obey God, we're saying to the world that God's way is better even if this obedience to him costs us everything. You see, Saul was the king. He felt responsible for the nation. You defeat a powerful nation, there's all of this gold, all of this, this, this wealth. What do you want to do? You want to secure the, the security of your nation, so you keep it, you take it. What was God saying? God was saying, don't trust in that, trust in me. If you give that up and you're worried about how you'll be provided for, I will provide for you, don't worry. And so for Saul to have obeyed God would be a declaration and a confession, God, I trust your ways. So in the same way, in your life, choosing obedience to God, even if it costs you, even if it comes at great sacrifice, is a declaration. God, I am set apart for you. I will follow after you. I will trust in you. My hope is in you, not in myself. Now, let's stop and apply this. As you think, as you hear this, is the Lord pressing something on your heart, an area of obedience that you feel led by God to give to him? Now, I, I don't know about you, but I don't think it's anyone's common experience that, you know, on Monday mornings you get a call from a prophet or uh, get an email saying, thus says the Lord, I want you to do this. If you do, let me know. But there are times that the Spirit presses on our hearts certain things. He convicts us of things, right? He places burdens on our heart. He uses other people's prayers, other people's wisdom to sort of help you know His will. And so what is that thing that you feel like God is calling you to obey? And begin to think about that. And for some of you, that, you, that may be so foreign. You're, you're thinking, oh, I'm, I'm coming up with nothing. 
But here's the thing. You open up the scriptures, the scriptures are full of God's commands and the call to obedience in all f- spheres of your life. If you say, well, Pastor Andrew, I, I don't know what, you're, what God is calling me to obey. I'm, I'm not sensing anything. The Spirit isn't pressing anything. Friends, just open this up. There are a lot of things for you to obey in here. And so let's just take one for example, right? And this is just an example. The sermon is not about this in particular, but let's just take one of the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments are given for us with the expectation that we would obey them. So here's just one example. Let's take the command to uh, remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Right? That's a command. Command given for you uh, to obey. Now, what does obedience to this command look like? Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And I think it really looks like two things. One thing is um, setting the day aside to remember and to celebrate God for who he is and what he's done for us. And one way, one expression of that is coming together in worship like this. Right, so we remember, we celebrate, we honor God. The second is to rest from the work and concerns of the rest of the week. God set this day apart so that we would rest, we would find our rest in him, we would rest from the affairs of the world. Six days you are to labor, but this day you are to rest. And so God is saying this. God is at least saying this to everybody. I want you to remember my Sabbath, Come with the people of God, worship, honor me, remember me, and second, I want you to rest from the uh, concerns and affairs of this world. But here's the thing about the Sabbath, and this is why I chose it. In this world, the world works on different principles, operating principles, and so Sundays are treated and approached very, very differently, right? For some, Sundays are days we want to keep for ourselves. It's the weekend. And so it's meant to be enjoyed. It's meant to be a time of relaxing. You know, maybe get out of town. Maybe stay home, watch some sports, sleep in, take it easy. And so the world says, it's the weekend. It's not the Lord's day. It's your day. Well, for others, Sundays are days we live for our kids. We spend their day, you know, we we, we work five days a week, and then we do our part-time job on Sunday, which is our children's chauffeur. We drive them around extracurricular activities from different sports games and tournaments and dance class and school functions. And so Sunday is not the Lord's day. It's your kid's day. And then there are those who have the pressures of work piling on them. So Sundays now, the world tells you, is what? It's an opportunity for you to catch up on the work that you missed or to get ahead on upcoming work. And so they think, and so, so the world says, why don't you get started on your work now? Why? So that you can rest later in the week. So don't rest now, but rest later in the week. Yeah, yeah. Sunday, it's not the Lord's day. It's another work day. And I just bring this example because the temptation to disobey this command remember my day and keep it holy, is so great because the world is suggesting to you all these other ways that you can treat Sunday and make use of it. So then obedience to God looks like what? It looks like choosing to believe, to rest in God's pattern of Sabbath remembrance and Sabbath rest. When you don't go do your work, when you go to a church, that is a defiant cry to the world. What, you gave up your weekend to go to church? When you had all that time and you weren't getting ahead in your work, how then can you ever get ahead in your company? How can you ever get ahead of anybody else? You see, when you choose to obey, it is a statement that God's way is higher, that God's way is better than my ways. 
that Sunday is better as the Lord's day than it is as our day or our kids' day or a work day. To obey is another way of saying, I know everybody else is doing it this other way, but God says to do it his way and I'm going with him. So in what areas of your life is God challenging you to obey him? You know, the spirit, he is at work. What is he convicting you of? Do you have, and, 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 and do you sense the conviction and the, do you have the courage to follow him in that area? Because it's not, I mean, Sabbath day, that's just one example. Maybe, maybe for you, it's maybe God is pressing on you because you're struggling with obeying um, the command to honor your parents or to submit to your husband or to lead your wife. Maybe for some of you, the Spirit is pressing on your heart that you should pray for your children instead of provoking your children. Maybe the Lord is pressing in your heart that you're called to obey him by giving to Caesars what is Caesars and you stop cheating on your taxes. You apply a little bit more integrity there. Maybe the Spirit is pressing on your heart. Hey, why don't you stop gossiping? Why don't you start using, stop using your, your tongue to start fires and instead use it to edify and give life and encourage and build up? Maybe there's an area of obedience where the Spirit is leading you to give more generously or live more sacrificially. And whether it's your energy, your time, your finances, whatever resource you have. Could the Lord be pressing on your heart to obey Him, to be more faithful in areas of family or friendship or church? See, I could just sit here and go on and on and on. The list does go on and on, but here's the thing. The Spirit leads, the Scriptures speak, and they call us to obey God. And God's saying, that is what I delight in. So as the people set apart, as the people redeemed, are you obeying the Lord? That's God's delight in obedience. But second, God's displeasure in disobedience. Now, although God told Saul what to do. Saul, in verse 9, uh, this is what it says. It says, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. So Saul's response to God's command was utter disobedience. It's a complete disregard for God, which leads to God's complete displeasure with Saul. And so God himself actually says in verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. He has not performed my commandments. And here's the worst part. Here's really the worst part of Saul's disobedience. It's his complete denial of it. Verse 11, God just said, he has not performed my commandments. And then in verse 13, when Saul sees Samuel, what does he say? Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And we talk about delusional, talk about denial. Saul's insisting he heard and listened to God's voice, but, and you love the Bible for this, as soon as Saul insists that he's been obedient, that's at the exact moment the sheep start bleeding. He's caught red-handed in his lie. I have obeyed the Lord. I have destroyed everything. <laughs> Samuel looks at him and says, well, what is that? You can just imagine this. Have you ever been on a, on a diet? And it's hard to do it alone, so you do it with people. 
And let's say, and let's say you're dieting well. You're, you know, a lot of people in the church are doing the keto diet. It's not a real diet, but uh, <laughs> you're dieting. You're hungry. And then someone comes in the office and they bring this beautiful chocolate cake. It's decadent. It's rich. And you fall into your temptation and, and you eat it. And, you know, your, your coworker, they're your diet partner. And you're walking, you know, back to your um, desk. And they say, well, how are you doing with your diet? You say, well, I'm doing well. I'm doing pretty good. And they say, really? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing well. You can be honest with me. No, no, I'm good. Then why do you have chocolate cake on your mouth? And then you say what? How many of you, because you feel so embarrassed, will go, oh, you call me. You go, what? Oh, I wasn't going to eat it, but so-and-so, man, they kept putting it in my face. She said, I had to try it. Oh, and what was I supposed to do? And you start making excuses, and that's exactly what Saul does, doesn't he? Twice he shifts blame. In verse 15, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. Verse 21, the people took of the spoil sheep and oxen. He keeps blaming others. He, he's delusional. He's in denial. Then when he's caught, he starts blaming other people. And so God is so upset at this. In verse 26, he rejects Saul as the king over Israel. He says, I'm going to take away this throne. I'm going to give it to somebody who's worthy. But why? Why is God so upset? Why is he so displeased with Saul's disobedience? And the answer comes to us in verse 23, when he says, for the rebellion, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. God's saying, your disobedience, the reason I dislike it so much, is because it's essentially rebellion against me, and it's presumption, or as other uh, translations put it, it's arrogance. When you're disobedient against God, you're basically saying to God, God, I hear you, I'm listening, I understand, but I know better than you. So instead of following your way, I'll do it my way. That's what disobedience is. You see, when Samuel spared the livestock, he had a reason for it. He mentions it twice, and it's, it's really interesting. Uh, do you see it? It's in verses 15 and 21, or, or Saul says that he spared the animals, why? To sacrifice to the Lord your God. He's covering it up in all this religious good language. I was doing it for you, God. So he keeps saying that he saved the animals, he disobeyed God because it was really for God's sake. God, this, this is for your good. Now think about that. What is he insinuating? That God didn't know what he was talking about when he commanded Saul to destroy all the animals. Saul's basically going, oh, well, God, if you really saw how good it was, if you knew how strong the oxen were, if you saw how plump the sheep were, Oh, then there's no way God would have told me to destroy it. He must not have been aware. So I'll keep it and offer it as a sacrifice. He'll be pleased by that. Now think about the rebellion and the arrogance there. What is that insinuating? First of all, it's insulting to God. It's doubting him. It's assuming that he made a mistake and I'm going to correct it. And secondly, it's of great arrogance. It's, it's man's arrogance. It lifts man up in a position where I know more than God. I know better than God. You see, whenever we disobey, it's an act of rebellion and arrogance. It's a way of basically saying to God, I know better than what you have commanded. You know, one time, uh, a few years ago, well, it was more than a few years ago, it was over 10 years ago, uh, I was going to a conference in LA. It was a mission conference, uh, the Southeast Asia Partnership Conference. And uh, on the way, the, the night before, uh, I went and I, I ate dinner um, and 
I got really bad food poisoning. And so as soon as I got home, you know, I began, you know, vomiting and other sorts of, you know, related activities. And it was all night, all night, uh, until the morning. And I barely got sleep and went on the airplane and headed over. And a flight from, you know, Philadelphia to LAX in Los Angeles is about six hours. And, you know, at the beginning you have to sit in the sign and, you know, at the end you have to seatbelt on because it's landing. But in that five-hour period, uh, my seat number was the toilet. Um, and on the, it, I was just vomiting. I was just feeling awful. Praise the Lord, we had a physician on our team. And this physician basically, you know, I told him what was going on, what I ate, what was happening, and he basically said, you know, you're, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty common sense stuff, actually. You shouldn't eat this kind of stuff. Stay away from this. Greasy food, you know, things that your body can't process. I want you to drink a lot of water. And he had this, you know, unmarked, uh, bottle of pills that I just <laughs> took and trusted him. It was antibiotics. But, but here's the thing. If you know anything about LAX, uh, you know um, that, well, if you know anything about LA, well, what's really popular about California is something called In-N-Out. Some of you may have heard about it, In-N-Out Burger, right? And so everybody, it's pretty rich. It's a ritual. You land at LAX, you get your rental car, and you go straight to In-N-Out. And so everyone goes in and out, and everyone's so excited because, you know, we don't have it here on the East Coast. And they're saying, I want this and this and this. And I'm saying, my stomach is hurting. And everyone's getting so excited in the line. Everyone's moving. And, oh, I'm going to get animal style. And, you know, that's like all this extra sauce. And I'm going to get this and this and this. And I'm sitting there, and I'm so miserable. But it smells so good. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there like, oh, Lord, you know, give me patience. And, and slowly, you know, the smell's hitting my nose, and I'm just... You know, because they cook it fresh. So I'm just kind of like looking over, and the doctor is sitting here, and he's looking at me like, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. And I'm sitting here, I'm so hungry. I'm so hungry. I'm like, oh. <laughs> he's saying, Andrew, don't be a fool. Don't do it. And of course, in my rebellion and my arrogance, because of course I know better than a doctor, I ignored his advice, and I went and I said, I got a double patty <laughs> with cheese. <laughs> and friends, one bite after, I spent the rest of dinner back in the bathroom. Now, think about this with me. Why would I know better than him? What in the world would make me think that my thoughts were higher than his thoughts? My thoughts that were uninformed, unshaped. His thoughts, informed by medical school, are shaped by decades of experience. But in defiance, in disobedience, in denial, right, I made my decision because I thought, well, what do you know? What do you know? You're just you know, a physician who's practicing medicine as longer than I've been alive. You've published papers in medical journals. What do you know? And how foolish of a thought it is, that arrogance, that rebellion. But in the same way, when we disobey God, when God tells us to do something and we go against it, what are we saying to him? What do you know? What do you know? You're only God, maker of heaven and earth. You only formed and knitted me in my mother's womb and hold the universe and the cosmos in the palm of your hand. But that's it. What do you know? You see how foolish it is that we would disobey God. And it's not merely an arrogant position because all parents, you know that when you tell your kid to do something and they don't do it, it's not simply disobedience. It never is. It's rebellion. It's defiance. You see it in their eyes. Your kids, 
Everything a kid says can be said in a cute manner, except I've never heard a toddler saying no in a cute way. You see, our disobedience against God is this rebellion against him. So let me just give you one, one example of this, how our disobedience is really a, 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 a covered-up way of saying to God that we know uh, that our way is better than his way. So God commands us, uh, wants you to forgive people. Actually, more, he says more than that, right? The disciples say seven times. He says 70 times seven, right? That doesn't actually mean 490 times. Don't keep track. It just means keep forgiving them. And so the Bible is very clear. Forgive others, right? But have you ever thought to yourself, someone's wronged you, and you thought, how can God tell me to forgive this person? Does he really expect me to do that? God must not know how much they hurt me, how, how piercing their words were, how, how harmful um, their actions were. God doesn't understand the devastation because otherwise he would never ask me to forgive that person. And so we begin thinking, oh, God isn't, God doesn't know. God must not really understand how, how much evil that person meant toward me. God must not be aware how messed up that person is. And so, you know what? I think I know better in this case. Yeah, God's telling me to forgive, but I think I know better. In fact, I think I'm doing a favor to the world because if I forgive them too early, then they're not gonna know how, you know, what they said and how much it hurt. And you know, if I forgive them too easily or too quickly, then they're not gonna feel guilty enough and then they're not gonna think anything's wrong with it. Then they're gonna hurt somebody else. So actually, you know what? If I don't forgive them, I'm, I'm being of service to the world. And we begin thinking our way is better than God's way. He must not know enough. If God really knew this person, then he wouldn't ask me to forgive them. And so it's my job. I need to make them feel guilty. I need to withhold it so that they feel worse and worse about themselves. My point is simply that when we take this command, forgive others, and we choose to disobey, we're basically saying to God, God, I know better than you. So friends, what are those areas in your life where you're disobeying God? What are those areas where you're saying to God, God, I, I know you're calling me to do this, but I'm going to do this because I think my way is smarter. See, unlike Saul, we must not deny it, be delusional about it, blame shift. Because disobedience, it's in our lives. It's so prevalent. The question is, what are you going to do with it? What can you do with it? Which leads to our third and last point. God's dealing with both. How does God deal with the disobedient? How does God deal with the obedient and the disobedient? So after Saul disobeys, what happens? God tears the kingdom from him. In verse 28, Samuel says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And so Saul's disobedience is basically proven that he's not worthy to have the kingdom. He has not lived as the king of God's people should have because a true king should set an example of obedience, should be the model of obedience. But Saul has failed to do that. Now, you know, if you're like me, when you read it, you're so quick to judge the people in the Bible. How could they make the, such mistakes? And the Bible, though, is beautiful because although it's a story, it's a narrative, it's also a mirror, but which any time that you point and say, how, how could this person do this? The finger's pointing right back at you. That's you. How are we any different than Saul? Have you not ever denied your disobedience or blamed other people from it? Have you, have you not thought that you knew better than God and that's why you chose your own way? See, all of us, we've failed to live as God has called us to. We, we also, like Saul, justly deserve nothing. Nothing! But remember, 
God promised when he took the kingdom from Saul that he would give it to another who was better than Saul. And so God's people, they were waiting, and they were waiting. And then King David came, next chapter, chapter 16, King David came, and they thought, oh, maybe it's this king. And for a while, when he slayed the giant, he looked like a good candidate until he quickly fell into sin and disobeyed God again and again. And so Israel, sitting there, king after king, throne after throne, crown after crown, all continued to disobey God one after another. And all the people could do is wait. God had promised that they would be a worthy king. The people just waited. History itself waited. History groaned for this king. And they waited and they waited and they waited until in the fullness of time, God said, I will, I'm sick of this. There will be no earthly king who could fully obey. So he sends us the king of kings, his one and only son, Jesus, who came and like no person before him lived a life of true and perfect obedience. And that Jesus Christ, from the moment of his birth into the moment of his burial, lived each and every day in humble and complete obedience to God's law like no person ever has. In fact, Jesus didn't just live in obedience, Jesus died in obedience. That Jesus used his obedience to die on a cross to forgive us for our disobedience. And so Philippians 2, as Elder Moon said it in the prayer, it's so bold, Paul is so bold as to say that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, we have this disobedience. What can we do with it? If God is just with us, then we deserve nothing, yet Jesus Christ came as the perfect king who would give up his life, who would live in obedience even to the point of death so that what? So that through his obedience he would welcome us into his kingdom. That he no longer treats us as disobedient sinners but he treats you as if you were obedient saints. And the gospel is saying you didn't deserve the kingdom and yet you have it because of Jesus. You see, Saul disobeyed, and as a result of his disobedience, the kingdom was torn from him. And yet here, Jesus Christ obeyed fully. Before our sake on the cross, he was torn so that he could take the kingdom and give it to us. Do you understand what the gospel means for you? It means that God never holds you accountable for your disobedience because Jesus took your place on the cross. You're forgiven. This day, you're forgiven. And now he graciously gives you the kingdom as an inheritance and he welcomes you into it. And you begin to realize that when I understand this, when this connects with my heart, it actually leads to a new freedom and a new motivation. I've been given this. I'm not obeying to earn. I'm not obeying out of fear. I'm obeying out of thanksgiving and response because the one who would send his son to live in obedience and die in obedience for me? How could I not live unto his glory? How could I not begin to want to please him? See, you begin to delight then in the things that God delights in. So you offer to him every area of your life, despite the cost, despite the sacrifice. 
Because if there is one who is willing to pay it all, then what is our sacrifice in light of that? Friends, this is what it means to live in a gospel-driven obedience. As a people saved by God, you're now commissioned by God. You're, you're, you're set free by God. And so I'll just close with this. You know, I, I, I'm excited for just the next few months of wrestling through this topic. What is a life pleasing to God? And I think so many of us want to do that. And maybe the question you're thinking is, how can I live unto God's glory? How can I live to please him? And you're thinking, you know, does it mean I take this job and I do this? And, and yeah, it starts with simple obedience. Simple obedience. And then it's my prayer that as we continue to dive deeper, deeper into this, that real transformation would happen in your lives. A real revival in evident and tangible ways. Not just that your thinking is different, that your lives in response to God would be transformed. And so what is a life that is pleasing to God? It's a life of obedience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that when you knew how we couldn't offer to you perfect obedience, you would send your one and only son, to live the life that we couldn't live. And then when you saw us in the predicament of our disobedience, you would send to us your son to deliver us from that. I pray, Father, for all my friends here gathered today, I pray this for myself, that an understanding of what Christ has done for us would not lead us to a life of being stale and inactive and unresponsive. But Lord, would lead to a life that's transformed, that's now not living for ourselves, but living to please you, to obey you. And so Lord, this very week, challenge us. Give to our hearts the very delight and we know you have. Father, as you receive our obedience and you have delight, I pray that you would give to us delight so that we would offer you our obedience. Help us do so, Lord, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. People of God, receive his benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the obedient one, and the love of God the Father Almighty, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen. Let us go forth to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Go in peace, friends.